Oh, it's good to be here with you this morning. We are moving to the book of Luke. We were, as we've gone through Acts, we've been reading Luke's, uh, Luke's letter, uh, and now we're going to the gospel of Luke because, hey, it's the Christmas season. Are you ready? Uh, question is, how long is a long time? A long time. And two of that student sitting in the classroom looking up the clock, the seconds are ticking by, minutes feel like hours. If you're my five-year-old daughter, the three weeks that we have up until Christmas morning is an eternity. How long, Dad? How long? About three weeks. How long is a week? Well, it's about seven days. How long is a day? Well, it's 24 hours, and so it goes. That's a long time. It's taking forever. It's never going to get here. Well, (laughs) how long is a long time? I'd say 400 years is a long time. That's how long it had been since the people of Israel had had a prophet that walked among them. That's, a long, that's how long it had been since there was someone that reassured them that God was still there, still unfolding his plan, still co- going to come through on his promises. Those promises that they traced all the way back to their father Abraham. And even, even before that, the allusions to it. They had, they had some, some sense that, that this, is, this is coming. This is, this is what we're waiting for. But for the past 400 years plus, there have been nothing. 400 years of, of, of radio silence. 400 years of feeling like absolutely no progress is being made. And, and simultaneously, 400 years of the world looking each new day like it's more God-forsaken than the previous one. 400 years of becoming more jaded and more pragmatic, more, more impressed by what you can touch and what you can taste and what you see and what you can hear, more, more and more impressed by what, what works in, in the world rather than what you believe in, what you hope for. 400 years of increasing skepticism, for the, for the fantastic, the supernatural stories of old. It doesn't take long for one generation to look back on what their grandparents told them or, or their great-grandparents told them and to begin to look, look at them with suspicion. Did they really know what they were talking about? Maybe, maybe they're just naive back then. Maybe they were just ignorant back then. If, surely if they knew what we know now, then they never would have attributed those kind of out, out of ordinary experiences, happenings to, to God. They, they, they'd explain it through, through reason and, and science. And yeah, it's clear. This is, this is what happened. Enter the, the order of the Sadducees. Enter the rise of the pragmatists, those who began to see religion as just a way to live your best life now, way to get ahead, to get what you want out of life. Enter the dark days where promises of a better life are are peddled for the sake of profiting or even controlling others. 
The days where marketing is just another name for selling snake oil. This is a time of doubt. This is a time of going through the motions. It's a time where you're just wondering, what are we doing here? But there were some who stubbornly held on to hope. There are some who still stupidly live as if legends of old have substance and meaning for today. They're the backward, the out of touch, who continue to, to pray and devote themselves to a being has not, who has not made the, the slightest appearance as, as far back as even the oldest can remember. In fact, even the oldest person alive could not even lay claim to have met anyone who had seen a living prophet. But even so, some still believed. There were still a few faithful devotees, kind of like uh, the ones in episode four who still had that sad devotion to the ancient religion. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> it's the age of, of the empire. Rome was the real power. Rome was the system for anyone who wanted to get anywhere in life. And it is in this context, the cold, the hard, cruel, calculated, blood-bathed world of the empire state, that's when something happens. Who's reporting the happenings here? Well, it's none other than a well-informed, level-headed man of science. It's a man who we could refer to as Dr. Luke. <laughs> and here he's writing to a man who presumably was very familiar with philosophy, with reason, with the way the world works, a Greek by the name of Theophilus. Well, how is Luke going to begin to tell about these happenings to this probably well-educated man living in this world of reason? How is he going to explain it? Is he going to go to logic? Is he going to go to philosophy? Is he going to go to science? No, he takes Theophilus and, and us to the ancient epicenter. He takes us to the place where the silent God had been said to dwell among a chosen people. The temple in Jerusalem, that's a foreign object to us, isn't it? It's, it's an exotic, non-existent place, and that's where Luke begins. That's where something fantastic took place. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, or verse 5 says this. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, we could probably gloss over this real, real quickly, but I think we need to appreciate that this is legendary language here. <laughs> it's kind of like saying, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Luke the man who opened up his letter to Theophilus, in the first four verses, he's assuring him that, that this is of the utmost accuracy. This is reliable, what I am writing here to you today. And he begins using this epic language. 
That's because he's not simply writing about a moment in time. He's writing about the moment in time. This is the subject of his narrative. It's the long-awaited dramatic entrance into human history of the one who would change everything. The character he introduces us to is a man by the name of Zechariah, a Jewish priest. How many of you know Jewish priests? He was a man who was set apart to facilitate worship in the most sacred space in Israelite religion. He's a member of a group of priests, and they were on rotation to serve together. And so his, his group was the division of Abijah. There were 24 of these groups of priests, and they would get two separate weeks out of the year to serve at the temple. Imagine waiting six months to have your week where you're going to serve. That's a big deal. Now, Zechariah, he wasn't a Catholic priest. No, he was, an, he was a Jewish priest. He was married. The rest of verse 5 says, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, that is. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so regardless of what anyone else was doing or how routine worship had become, here are two people who are presented to us as the real deal. They were righteous. That doesn't mean they were perfect, of course, but it means that they were sincerely seeking to walk in, in faithful trust and obedience to God, the ancient God, the God who created all things, the God who had been betrayed, the God who had promised to bring about a blessing to all the nations through this small, rather insignificant people known as Israel. Zechariah and Elizabeth sought to live their lives to give glory and honor to this God. But, but for all their devotion, they were missing out on one of the, the, the most fundamental natural blessings that those created in the image of God get to enjoy. They didn't have any children. Elizabeth was barren, it says. Not only that, she, she was old. <laughs> she was just old. She had waited a long time, hoping, praying, dreaming of the day when it be her turn to hold joy in her hands. But after years and years and years, that day had not come. Why? Well, maybe they were being punished somehow. Maybe there was some sin in their life. We can't go there because it, Luke just told us that they were walking blamelessly. Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, there, there are any number of un, undesirable circumstances that we're either born into or find ourselves in that aren't necessarily an indication of, of God's discipline. But that in his sovereignty... He simply has other plans. And in this case, for certain, better plans. It's hard to trust in. It's hard to wrestle with and hold on to and accept that reality, especially when you're in the midst of it. But we serve a sovereign, faithful, good God, do we not? You might be there right now. And so we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And very often there's a point down the road where 
we come to that point where we start thinking, I don't know if what I'm waiting for is on its way. What are you waiting for? How long do you have to wait? What point do you think about just giving up on the waiting? Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before, the, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. It, this is another thing. We could probably just gloss right over and miss the significance here. This is no small thing. This is no small honor that Zechariah has just been chosen for. To be selected, to be the one who would enter into the, actually into the temple doors of the physical building here and into the room known as the holy place where there's, there's nothing separating you and the, 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 whole, the most holy place but a, but a curtain. And you get to go in there and stand in there and perform this, this sacred rite of burning incense upon the altar. That's a big deal. That's a once-in-a-lifetime honor very likely, as the smoke is billowing and rising up in that room, a very, very tall room, by the way. It's symbolizing the prayers going up to God of all of those the thousands who are just outside, and no doubt the prayers of Zechariah himself that he's offering as he's burning this incense. You know, this is one of the ways the people live contrary to those, the old lives of rebellion. No longer do they, they look within themselves, or to anyone else for that matter, and, and, and say, meet my deepest needs. No, they, they now cast their cares on God, who they recognize as the only one who has ever been able to provide for them, at least as they need as was his routine, Zechariah would have laid his personal requests for he and his wife before the Lord. But as he acted in this official priestly capacity, he would have certainly been praying for all the people out there, all the people of Israel. And he would have prayed for the long-awaited hope of Israel. Well, they felt it each and every day. They felt Rome's oppressive rule over them. He would have been praying for the fulfillment of God's promise for a Messiah. He would have been praying for God's light to fall upon a people dwelling in darkness. That their joy would be increased as enemies and oppressors are thrown off and as the instruments of war are, are burned as fuel for the fire. Like the words of Isaiah that he prophesied all the way back in chapter 9. The Ming family read it, read it earlier. We read it again. I, I, I bet you this was on his mind. Unto us a child is born. Well, that would take on very deep meaning to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Oh, what a thought that is. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness 
from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe as he was praying, he was thinking and even praying the words of the psalmist in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Have you prayed similar words? Maybe, maybe not quite so elegant. But, but how long? Maybe you've been waiting for that new job or the end of an illness or maybe for the return of a rebellious child. A restoration of a, a, a long-time strained relationship. Maybe you've been looking out at what's going on in our world and, and you see the rebellion against God that's being codified into actual policy and, and you listen to the stories on the news of the senseless violence out there and your heart breaks as you see people who you know even continue to choose selfishness and continue to take advantage of each other and devalue one another. And you pray, how long, O oh Lord? How, how long are you going to put up with all this? How long until you return to make things right? Maybe there's some of the sentiments going on in Zechariah's heart. But that's when it happened. Dr. Luke makes no apology here. He doesn't try to explain it away as some type of phenomena of, of nature or, or science. No, he doesn't, doesn't go there. And he writes, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I'll bet he was troubled. That doesn't happen every day. You and I, we get startled when, when we thought we were alone, and then someone says, Hi, and we go, <gasps> Zachariah, he knew he was alone. No one else could be in there. And this person that appeared out of nowhere, unmistakably different from anyone else he ever saw before. And in an instant, the God who was thought to have been silent for more than 400 years spoke through a messenger. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. That name John means God's gracious or undeserved gift. Angel goes on to say, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord he must not drink wine or, or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Joy and gladness? 
You bet there was going to be joy and gladness. If what the angel said was true, then what was about to happen is nothing less than a miracle. You know, anytime a new life is brought into the, the world, that's reason for celebration. It's a miracle in and of itself. But for Elizabeth to have a baby, after all those long years of waiting, absolutely astounding. And this baby is to be God's gracious gift. Even this baby's name was, would declare that something extraordinary was afoot here. After 400 years of silence, thousands of years since the promise had been made to his father Abraham, something incredible and unprecedented was about to take place. Zechariah listened on. There must have, that must have become more and more apparent to him. Not only was a baby in his future, this was an astounding break of the silence. This baby is going to be special. Not only was this a break in the silence, but this baby is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we can expect that God is, as he's speaking now, he's going to speak more and more and more. God is going to say something through him. The wait is over. Because he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does, does human life matter? Even before it's been seen, it's seen the light of day. <laughs> Clearly it does to God. That John's life would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. That speaks loud and clear, doesn't it? That he mattered to God. Personhood? The person of the Holy Spirit is indwelling this child. He's being especially prepared for God's use. Just like David declared, he was being knit together in his aged mother's womb. Well, what's the reason here? What's the purpose? What's the big deal? The angel continues. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. We need that today. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is just, this is too much. <laughs> this is too good to be true. Not only was this the answer to the, the hopes and prayers of his wife for so many long years, but his son, would be the one who would prepare the path for the long-awaited hope of Israel. Zechariah would have known the scriptures. He would have drawn the connection immediately to Isaiah 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The even, uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is phenomenal. This is incredible. I, I, I don't know how to communicate it even, even any more than that. This is the epic moment that he and all his people had been waiting for, and yet despite the miraculous appearance of the angel, as well as the knowledge of, of what God had done in in the past, all those miraculous stories that he had heard before, Zechariah still struggles to believe. 
And he says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how small-minded and unbelieving we can be, even when the evidence is right before our eyes. Isn't it astonishing how impatient we can be? It's not enough that God has told us something is going to happen. We want to touch it. We want to taste it. We want to see it right here and now before we go all in with all of our heart and all of our, our trust, right? You know, in a matter of months, Zechariah would have known without a doubt that his wife was going to have a baby. <laughs> he could have waited. But he wanted some sort of sign that would allow him to walk out of that temple, that holy place, with certainty that this is actually, hap it's actually happening. It's happening right now. Isn't this the same trouble that we have as we wait for Christ's return? It's been promised to us promised with, by Jesus' own lips. He's, he's given us a reliable record that tells us that just as he ascended from heaven, he's going to return the same way. And yet, as wait continues, we find ourselves struggling. Struggling. Zechariah was given the sign that he asked for. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and un unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I find your lack of faith disturbing. This is the first time in Luke's gospel where the word, the word for good news is used. Good news is exactly what the angel was delivering. It was good news delivered by the one who is so high up the chain of, of heavenly command, he's actually permitted to stand in the presence of that holy, holy, holy God. That's a big deal. Now, Zechariah is in a very significant place as well. He's standing there in that holy place. Wow. Never, I was, always wondered, would I be able to go in there and have the role of burning the incense? That's a special honor. But this angel, on the other hand, stands regularly in the presence of God in heaven himself. Should Zechariah have believed? Oh, yes, he should have believed. How he should have believed. He should have believed, just, just like those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, who have been indwelt by the promised Holy Spirit, effectively making us the holy temple of God, who have, who have entrusted everything to, to him and are allowed to freely, boldly enter the throne room of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as, as Hebrews tells us in 4.16, Boy, we should step with in, into each new day with unshakable confidence that what Christ has promised us, that's as good as done. If God has said it, it's as good as done. Zechariah should have believed, but what he failed to believe moments before, he must have believed after this. You're not going to be able to speak. 
what an unmistakable sign. God's at work. Now, I wonder how many signs that we have been given in our lives that we just, we just brush aside and pass off as, oh, yeah, that was, that was curious. <laughs> and sometimes we'll say, that wasn't, just cur- that wasn't just coincidence. How many signs have we experienced? What are some things that we look back on and we say, you know, I think that was God working there. No doubt one of the most powerful of them for me in my life is the simple reality that he opened the eyes of such a stubborn, hard-hearted, judgmental, narcissistic, self-congratulating man like me. I should not be here. Nor should you. You want a sign? Look at your own salvation and go, wow. Lord, thank you. What evidence do you need to faithfully, obediently, patiently, expectantly wait for God's return? We're living in some strange days, aren't we? We're living, we're, we're told that the Savior has come to the world. We're, we're celebrating that in this moment. We have a whole month dedicated to that. And, and if you're like one of those other people, you know, you have like three or four or maybe 12 months to celebrate Christmas. We read now of how we're on the other side of the cross, on the other side of history. The Messiah has come. The work has been finished. The Lamb was slain on our behalf in our place but he's also risen victoriously from the grave and was granted all, a heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth. We're his people if we've confessed our sins, if we've turned from them, if we've entrusted ourselves into the good hands of Jesus Christ. And yet the longer we wait and the more we watch our world run further and further away from its creator, the more we're tempted to entertain doubts and to lose heart, and probably more often than any of those things, just to live like none of this is true. That was the case for so many in Zechariah's day. Friends, this is so important. The time that has passed, and whatever time is yet to tick by, it's no reason for us to be any less expectant of our king's return. Amen? As tempting as it may be for us to allow ourselves to get, to get, just get comfortable here, we can't let our, our devotion go lax. We must not lose sight of our mission. We must not surrender to compromise or to just pragmatic thinking. We can never allow ourselves to become a people who merely just go through the motions. Oh, it's another Sunday. I guess I need to put on my Sunday best and, and put on a nice smile and, and be there with God's people. Or maybe we're only willing to obey and worship God so long as he gives us what we want. <laughs> We've seen Christian after so-called Christian embrace the, the temporary pursuits of this world, the popular fads of our fallen culture, right? We've seen church after church adjusting their doctrine and compromising their theology and doing exegetical gymnastics with God's word to stay relevant and to draw people in the doors. And we see ourselves get so comfortable and so fixated on building these sandcastles of security 
fantasy land kingdoms, lifestyles centered on pleasure and relaxation on earth, as if, as if this is all we've got. How can people of the promise go through life living as if our king is never coming back? Well, it's been 2,000 years. That's a lot longer than 400 years. Why should we think he's going to show up in our lifetime if he didn't show up in my grandparents' lifetime? You expect it because he told you to expect it. And he told you to be ready because he's coming again. We've forgotten how God works. We've forgotten how, how this has happened in the past. Has it been so long that, that we've seen something fantastic or something supernatural that we've begun to think that you know, these things just don't happen? You know, this is the world of the, of the, the supercomputer and the iPhone and all this kind of, you know, the, the, the electric cars. And that's the way the world works. That's, that's the name of the game. Has being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, become less about being a child of God and a member of the eternal kingdom and more about just having an active social life and making a donation here and there to feel good about ourselves? Or maybe we've just become so enamored with those technological advancements and human achievements and our accumulation of knowledge that it's just becoming harder and harder for us to look forward to something that just doesn't fit into our paradigm of how the world works. As we look back, on how God broke the silence with the greatest news of all time, may we be reminded that that same God is coming back. <sighs> no doubt in my mind that when Zechariah lost his voice, he knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is, this, is, this is the beginning of something big here. Something big is about to happen. And on the eighth day, his son is born. Eight days later, his voice is restored after he said, yes, his name is going to be John. But then Zechariah doesn't wait for John to grow up and, and for the filling of the Holy Spirit to work powerfully through him and the word of God preparing the way for the Savior to come. He doesn't wait for all that to happen. No, Zechariah just starts bursting forth. God's Holy Spirit fills Zechariah, whose name, by the way, means God has remembered. Wow, it's amazing how all these things fit together. And Zechariah starts powerfully proclaiming the good news. It says, his father Zechariah, John's father Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And I love this. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Had the Savior arrived? Not yet. Was the wait over? Not entirely. 
but it didn't matter. God had shown himself reliable. He had come through on his promise to give Elizabeth a son. Zechariah had no reason to doubt that anything that God had said would come in the future was going to actually come. And he burst forth praising God. Does the darkness loom for us? Has the wait been so long that your faith in the promises of old sometimes is beginning to wane. Be watchful. Be expectant. Be faithful. The king who has come is coming again. Let the words of of Peter's second letter be an encouragement to you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 13, he continues, but according to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, his fellow believers, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's a big, important command for his church. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, oh yes, (laughs) which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Yes, we live in a day where people are twisting God's word to make it say what it does not. And that's why Peter says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen? My friends, has the king come? Yes, he has. Are we waiting the days when he will return? We are.